it's another Monday. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David McConaughey, and with me today is... Brianne Fallon. Hello, Bree. How are you this fine day, morning, night? It is morning. Um, morning. It is it's not fine. It is very gloomy and rainy, but I oh, kind of like it that way. How are you? We are about to enjoy the first heat wave that New England is uh, is welcoming this year. So, so hopefully... People can um, put themselves off in the yard with the sprinklers or the pools if they have them, or however they can get a little bit of fresh air in these uh, confining times. Well, when you're not out in the sprinkler or enjoying the fresh air, we do have a fabulous new podcast this week. This week we have a an episode on exploring African shamanism and white sangomas in South Africa with Dr. Ulrich Kleinheppel and Maxine Connolly-Panagopoulos. Take it away. Hello, Ulrich, and a very warm welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Today, we're recording between Glasgow and the edge of the forest in West Nuremberg. And even though we could do many podcasts on your body of work, from orthodox spirituality and theology, esotericism and syncretism. Today, I'd really like to focus on your 2018 article on White Sam Gomez and the shamanic call in South Africa. So for the listeners who are unfamiliar with this topic, might you start by explaining a little bit about what a Sangoma is? A Sangoma is basically a Bantu shaman. And that word is used quite generically. It's a Zulu word. Bantu, that's the name for all the black African people who live in a line from West Africa, the bend of Africa there where Cameroon is, in a straight line to the East Africa, Horn of Africa to Kenya. And south of that, the people are all related linguistically. The Bantu people immigrated to this realm from Nigeria about 4,000 years ago. They began to migrate there. They were farmers and herdsmen and blacksmiths. Before they came, they were hunter-gatherers, the Khoisan there, also known colloquially as Bushmen. They lived with other archaic peoples like pygmies and others who have vanished. And the Khoisan have a very well-developed practice of mediumism and trance. The Khoisan, the Bushmen, they engage in out-of-body travels of soul, calling of rain, calling of animals, relating to nature spirits, to answers of souls and the like. Quite elusive people, but with a well-developed culture in that way. And they visit the spirits at special sites like rock pools or waterfalls. And they also do trance dance and spiritual healing. Now, the bunch of people who came into that area learned a lot from them. They've intermarried and uh, took up their spirits, respected them for what they are. And uh, that distinguishes the Bantu people from other African people as of West Africa. Now, my sources are especially from the South African people, people of the Amakosa. There are the people of Nelson Mandela. There are about as many people as there are Swedish people. And they have observed most from the Khoisan, even the clicks in the language. You can hear six clicks. Now, what is Bantu shamanism? There are basically three types of Bantu shamanism. And the distinction and the combination varies from one people to the next. The first is the herbalist. They learn the medical powers of herbs from tradition and by mediumism. They're called Isnyanya Oikwele. Now, you may be, some, may be surprised to find the herbalists enlisted here, but just imagine how many hundreds of medical plants are known to shamanic people in South America, in Africa, 
And these plants have never been found by experimental trials. You know, most of the patients would have died that way because many plants are poisonous. And amongst these tens of thousands of plants there are in the wild, the plants that have curative powers have been revealed to the diviners in dreams. They, you know, dream of a patient who has a certain illness like malaria, and then they all of a sudden they're shown in a dream where to go in the forest and which plant to take and what, how to treat it to make a medicine out of, out of it. And that store of knowledge is vast, and medical companies, even to this day, go send their scouts to those indigenous people to learn from their medical knowledge. And the second role is the diviner, the diviner who uses oracles like bones or similar objects in Bantu cultures. They're called the Isangoma. There are oracles in other cultures too, like West African Ifa, oracle of the Yoruba people, or the European Tarot. And these oracles are quite sophisticated. It takes intuition, mediumistic endowment, also some psychological knowledge to train and training to read them properly. And then there are the seers. Those are people who can rely completely on their own inspiration, their dreams, premonitions, telepathy, visions, intuition. They're called isitunwa. The African indigenous churches who integrate the African heritage, they regard them as prophets and have adopted that role completely. Now, to talk meaningfully about these things, you really have to set aside a positivistic and materialistic approach. But maintain an acute scientific mindset, very clear on phenomenology, and basic research and documentation and listening to people, and being prepared to change your own concepts of reality. If you're not prepared to that, and stick to a reductionist view, which says, oh, this is all cultural imaginations and constructions and so on. It's like, you know, telling people the moon is just a cultural construction. You can see that by mythology. And uh, the moon is some kind of delusion to adapt uh, in the course of evolution. Uh, it's wasting your time. It's wasting the time of readers, and you won't end up anywhere. So it's just a fruitless exercise in ideology. If you engage in these things, be prepared that the people who have developed this kind of shamanism have been acute, intelligent people like you and me over the centuries, over hundreds of years, and they have very fine powers of discernment. And maybe we are just, in a way, deaf to these things and just say, oh, well, these things don't exist. Uh, just to give a very brief comparison, just imagine you're a deaf person who can't hear you go to study music and can read all these notes and say, oh, this is a wonderful cultural construction, but something like sound, you know, that doesn't exist. Do you hear anything? I don't, you know. Okay. Now, we have to accept that these things are real because otherwise we are just getting nowhere. Now, if you are interested in this topic, of course, at some point, you will ask yourself, well, how can one become a Songoma? Well, to say, okay, I'll... Trained to become a Sangoma, that's about to say, okay, I'll be an opera singer one day. Now, without perfect hearing, a good voice, fine sense of music, of harmony, you're not going to get anywhere. You may study, 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 but you're not going to end up being an opera singer. Okay, now someone will say, okay, I'll be a musician. I'll learn three, three uh, chords on my guitar, and I'll say, oh, I'm a musician, you know. These things are unfortunately happening at present with the Sangoma too, because Sangoma is not a protected title at the moment, and the controls for who can call himself a Sangoma, or mostly herself a Sangoma, it's very much a female profession, that is present not in the best condition. Hmm. In traditional societies, these things have been very regulated. There were boards of 
control, of education, of training, of examination. Most artists' exams comparable to an opera singer before you would be qualified and accepted as Sangoma. Now, unfortunately, at present, this is, has been weakening. So a lot of quacks with the sense of money put up a sharp sign, oh, I'm a Sangoma and charge you a lot of money and you, you will believe me and I will do something for you. And that's ruining the profession and it's harming it very much. Now, the first requirement to become a real Sangoma is a real mediumistic endowment. And that usually shows up in childhood already. A child may dream of things in advance that happen later or may know intuitively about things like or see spirits of familiar people who have just passed away without the child knowing and say, oh, Mama, I saw a neighbor walking up the stairs. And Mama says, oh, you can't be. You must be dreaming. That person died two weeks ago. That's a kind of mediumistic endowment that turns up in childhood already. Now, you need that mediumistic endowment, and then you need a calling. And that calling can turn up even pretty late in life. Strange dreams come, recurring dreams with a sense of urgency. Strange accidents and coincidences happen, all these kind of things. And a person may feel like turning mad and, you know, getting insane and fearing for sanity. And this is a, quite a crisis. And if you decide, well, you may have to make a decision there. Either say, I have the means and the time and the willingness, and I'm prepared to follow that call, regardless what it's going to demand of me and cost me. And that's usually a severe surreption in, in life. Or you say, no, I can't follow it. I just have to reject it. And you say, then the calling will go away, but it usually goes away at the price. Some leaves some traces in your soul, some hurt. Now, if you heed the call, then you can experience that the spiritual field takes over, or as the Bantu people say, the spirits begin to take over. They send you things, things happening, meeting things, real things, by occasion, which are just, you know, out of the normal. And then if you enter training, that's a complex, structured process. It's been described quite well by two authors who have gone long traditional training. The one is an academic psychologist in South Africa, Dr. Lily Rose Numfundum Lisa. And she wrote a dissertation entitled Ukutwasa, Initiation of Amakriha, Identity Construction and the Training of Osa Women as Traditional Healers. And the other is an American write, accomplished writer, with many books. Uh, he wrote a book about his own calling, which sent him to Swaziland for over three years. And his book has the title Sangoma, My Odyssey into the Spiritual World of Africa. Just to remember, the first author is Lideros Numfundo Mlisa, and the second is James Hall. You both found them both on the internet. Okay, now the state of being in this process of training is called Intuasa. And this is feared, as Dr. Melissa explains, and she writes, I think in Kataz madness it is indeed, since it involves syndromatic illnesses and a conglomerate of factors that culminate in various afflictions. Sometimes Ukutwasa involves signs that resemble madness, such as hallucinations and illusions entering into the Ukutwasa initiation heals the person. And she states that the process of training is often feared as time-consuming, expensive, disruptive to family life and employment, also involving obligations to heed the inspiration of ancestral spirits perpetually. If the afflictions suffered by someone who experiences signs of spiritual calling are so severe, but people sometimes feel, well, they can't avoid that call. They just have to follow it, may it cost what it does. It's called to be possible, but to reject, but at a higher price. Now, Melissa defines seven stages of the training process. The first is the prediction stage of a chosen ikiha. Ikiha, this is the manifestations of mediumism at an early stage. Then the second stage is the, in the, the calling comes, which is called obizo. At this stage, dreams affect them, troubles are intensified, 
and serious action has to be undertaken. Then comes the stage of intense afflictions when the things get really into a crisis. And when this is, happens, usually the, the master Sangomas will say, okay, this is a sign things are getting serious. We can take that person for training. We will accept that person. These things are genuine and they're powerful. And then comes the stage of, which is lasting actually the whole time, confusion, resistance, or acceptance. You have regrets. You say, oh, well, I'm maybe not suitable. I don't have the abilities to do. Maybe it's all just a hallucination. Maybe I have psychic problems, and so on and so on. And that may go right up to the end of exams or the day before examinations. And all of us who have passed examinations, I think, know these kind of feelings. Then comes the real stage. Then comes the real stage that is Ukuvuma Ukufa. That's where intensified training begins. And this train involves a series of rituals, like formal beating and donning of attire of a trainee. Now you're visibly a trainee. Then rites of cleansing, acceptance of death, because transformation is also kind of death of your previous ego and person you were, illness, suffering. And uh, you have to be baptized into that stage of a trainee. Then comes cle- come cleansing rituals of the body, the homestead environment, also sacrificial rituals. This is a side where not everybody will be happy with, but sacrifices are done because the blood is perceived as a substance bearing power of life and spirit, spiritual quality too. Then comes the rites of acceptance with sacrifice and prayers for the initiate. And the initiate has to learn quite a lot. And then that comprises, for instance, I will quote Melissa again. The trainer is entirely convinced that Mkweta has a calling and she is committed to it. She has to demonstrate skills and abilities in the divining system, assessments, diagnosis, preparing for treatments. Then exclusion from family life and social life intensifies and new restrictions are introduced. Food restrictions differ markedly from the previous stage. She must help in mentoring her juniors. Most of the time, Mkweta is expected to work independently, but under strict guidance of the trainer. She becomes an assistant to her trainer. She can also lead certain procedures and rituals under guidance. And moreover, she must demonstrate more expertise in knowledge and understanding how various herbs are collected, stored, and used. End of quote. Then comes Ukupuma, that's the last stage of intensive training, again, with certain rituals adjoined to it. But that includes long times of isolation and seclusion, ritual pilgrimages and rites, and special sites in nature, sometimes shown in dreams where to go, spiritual retreats, sacrificial rituals, public proofs of mediumistic prowess, like, for instance, the trainee is called into a room, and in the room somewhere a coin is hidden, you know, like under a bookshelf or wherever. And that person mm-hmm. who enters has to find that coin and find it quick and with certitude and things like that. These are really demanding tests. And if you pass them sufficiently, then you do a name change to show your new identity. And there comes the rights of public investiture and acceptance as a new role, as a progressed Ikmicha or Sangoma. Then comes the stage of being accepted into the communities of Iknichas, or Sangomas as a full member. That is a really dignified ordination. And then you're still expected uh, to go for lifelong learning. As long as you are, there may be somebody who knows more, maybe in a certain field, and you go train with them, or you go for seclusion and pilgrimages and all these things. This is a lifelong process. And uh, at present, Professional boards of Sangomas and traditional heroes are organizing and have organized already and getting legally recognized and integrated into the healthcare system to safeguard the profession standards and to protect from imposters and quacks. 
So this is about Brilliant. a way to give you an overview for this. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. That was a really, really great overview, as you say, about the whole process. And um, it's wonderful to hear those clicks again, and, and your pronunciation is fantastic. Um, I'm really quite interested as well, especially your paper regarding the white sangomas. You speak um, about them having to, of course, have the same process. And I wonder, how are these individuals received in their communities? And maybe what are some of the cultural or religious tensions surrounding white sangomas? Well, this is a complex issue that has to be taken quite serious because it touches on the issues of identity, collective cultural identities, and respect for culture and all of these things. Now, we have this keyword of cultural appropriation, which means basically you cannot take somebody from something from somebody else's culture. Well, but by those standards, if you apply them strictly, we as Europeans or Africans would not be allowed to read and write because the Phoenicians invent the alphabet and it's their cultural property. Of course, we read and write. So this has limits. But from a philosophical point of, point of view of African culture and the worldview, there is a quite clear answer to that. And this provides a basis of how to do things legitimately. Also for people coming from outside like whites. Because in the acceptance and the manifestation of Sangoma divination, you connect with spirits. And these spirits are perceived as those who actually guard the whole process and the, the masters of the process. Now, in this process, you connect to your own family's ancestral spirits. They turn up in dreams like you may dream of a great-grandfather whom you never saw, but you, you know it's him and you know this person has a message for you or maybe he will guide you and accompany you. So your own family's ancestral spirits, first of all. Then secondly... Essentially, the ancestral spirits of the masters of Goma with whom you do your training. Some of it, usually her, it's mostly female profession, but also some males. Her or his own mental spirits will also become part of your own spiritual realm and they will begin to exert authority over you. So this is the point where inevitably African, black African spirits, Bantu spirits will enter into the realm the consciousness and subconsciousness and spiritual realm of a white trainee. Then there are the spirits of the land where you do your training, especially where you were born. You're perceived to be connected spiritu spiritually to the place you were born. Yeah. That makes a black person born in Europe a European spiritually in a certain way and a white person born in Africa an African in a certain way because uh, you're connected to the spirits of the land and you may visit that place and uh, connect there spiritually and feel you are connected and things like that. Then also the spirits of your place and land of origin where your people come from. And then also spirits of other people, objects or places like you stood in front of a painting and in this painting somebody was depicted and all of a sudden that person would pick, turn up in your dreams. So close, emotionally close, significant connections can also connect you to spirits maybe of long, long times ago. And those spirits among these classes that have taken a bode in you and guide you and reveal to you by dreams, intuition, special occurrences, most of all in trance, also position trance, and even like there's this form of dance, positioned trance dance, where the spirit enters your body and expresses itself by certain movements, first of all, before you begin to recognize that spirit. 
So these spirits come to you and some of them become important for you and will stay with you and connect with them and you get their powers and advice, also healing powers, divinatory powers, and you have an assortment of individual spirits. And they're obviously, if you're a white person, you're European ancestral spirits, your family spirits, and the African spirits of the land and of the trainer. Now, so interesting. Yeah. And uh, if you have gather these spirits, you also take in their fate. They may have experienced much sorrow in their life and you may experience like bouts of anguish or sorrow that you can't explain from your own life. But you feel a desperate fear, sorrow, anxiety, which is that of a mental spirit. So you live part of their life again, sensitizes you to certain things, so that means you also have a certain price. You live with those spirits intrinsically. They also guard you. And James Hall observed him being a Catholic, like these spirits are similar in a way to these saints of Catholic uh, piety. The saint also was a person that lived, and the saint is in a way a spirit in the other world uh, who will still guard you. So uh, things that can also happen, like if that black African, Bantu African mentor, Sangoma, has some white person up in the ancestral line, that Bantu may also have a white spirit in his own family spirits, because in South Africa, on a low scale, there was intermarriage all through the centuries. Now, about mm-hmm. acceptance in communities, the institution of Sangoma's Uri, is a very respected profession. It's like, you know, the social status of a psychoanalyst, these people are respected, or mm-hmm. maybe a bishop or an abbot. Sangomas are really revered persons. And this institution has made the transition from rural society into, mo- into modern urban South Africa. It's also made the transition from a pagan culture into Christian culture. And today, you, if you look up the internet, you will find professionals in many fields, such as psychologists, teachers, academics, medical doctors, and so on, who are also trained and graduated Sangomas. And the majority of South Africans, statistically, have consulted with the Sangoma at some point in life, like myself, and sometimes in addition to a medical doctor or psychotherapist. And that's a very special experience. And the institution of the Sangoma has successfully made the transition into Christian realm, first through the African indigenous churches who integrate the African spiritual heritage and its forms. And they created the office of the prophet or praying for healing, praying for rain and these things. But also the, the mainline churches are gradually beginning to accept that. There are some evangelical churches who will say, or, or fundamentalist Catholics who say, oh, this is all of the devil. But still they have some form of recognition of it. On whites, have, especially in rural areas, at all times consult with Sangomas if they knew no other council or hope for special powers. And, but that was usually done in secrecy. So this maybe gives an overview. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on that. So you mentioned the movement from sort of pagan to Christian. Um, and then you also, in your outline of what exactly it takes to become a Sangoma, you mentioned some sacrificial aspects. Mm-hmm. And so if we think um, about Sangomas more broadly, you know, um, thinking about this identification as a Christian, as well as the darker side of some African shamanic practice, um, you know, for example, the use of human body parts in rituals, 
How is this navigated by the Sangomas who practice spiritual healings, but they also see themselves as Christians? It is an important question both to Christian Sangomas and to the African traditional pagan Sangomas because Sangoma powers are magic powers apart from the divination. And magic is a neutral thing. It's like fire. You can heat a fireplace with fire. You can light a candle, but you, you can also burn a house or uh, burn the countryside. So these powers can be used in both ways. And uh, if you can use them, it's like telepathy. You can send a, a good wish to a friend or family member, hoping they will pass your exams or a difficult conversation, whatever. But you can also send harm. And this mm -hmm. is the inherent ambivalence in the magic powers. Now, as to the bodily aspects, I mean, we have things like wedding rings, or we have photos of or special objects by our parents and gifts which we won't drop on the floor. We'll treat them with reverence. We have the idea in Christian European culture of blessed objects that you treat reverently accordingly. And this is a strong point of African traditional culture and philosophy that the different realms of mind and matter and the intermediate fine method realm, that these are interconnected and the one works on the other. So you work with objects, but if these objects are blessed or have some inherent powers, they also have a spiritual and uh, cultural uh, aspect to it. And if you apply that to body, I talked about the blood as being a substance of life. Now, body parts are perceived as having the powers of the person, like a person's brains, a person's heart, kidneys, and so on. And unfortunately, those who uh, practice dark magic, magic for harm, they will kill people just to obtain the powerful parts of the bodies. And there is a special department in South African police specialist for so-called Muti murders. And this is a pest. It's a pan-African pest. People all over Africa get killed for magical purposes. It's a real, real violent, evil thing. And it's been treated with contempt and horror in African traditional culture already. Uh, but unfortunately, those uh, people who do this kind of thing, often for a lot of money, they'll promise you, you know, you can get rich, you can kill your foes and uh, do things like that. So this isn't the darker side of it. As to the sacrifice yeah. and the ritual objects, this is something we share in European culture too. Hmm. It's interesting that. Um, so if we just move sort of away from thinking about just the general practices of the Sangoma and thinking more about how academics might engage with this, um, could you maybe outline some of the ways in which this has been engaged with from an academic perspective? And you mentioned earlier about sort of that balance between keeping an open mind along with your scientific mindset. So thinking about academic approaches, do you think that there are some who have aided in the understanding of Sangomas? Sure. Well, actually, South Africans have been pioneers in this endeavor. I may remind something which uh, Dr. Lily Rosen and Fundum Lisa told me. After her dissertation was published on the internet, a Jungian psych analyst associate with the C.J. Jung Institution in Zurich, that's the headquarters, visited her. 
and the Association of Union Psychoanalysts of South Africa have invited her regularly and continue to do so through lectures. And last year, the International Association of Union Psychoanalysts held the World Council in Vienna, and she was invited as a keynote speaker. There were over a thousand participants in the 1,400 participants, and at the end of her lecture, she received standing ovations, and many of the participants had tears on their face, and that may the, illustrate the impact of her work. Now, those not too familiar with psychotherapy, Jungian psychoanalysis is the most expensive and prestigious form of psychoanalysis. It takes a long training, about 150,000 to 200,000 euro just for the training. You need a broad basis in cultural knowledge of myth and uh, tales and so on and symbols. And that makes it a arduous and demanding and very rich form of psychoanalysis, and she was invited into that World Congress there. Well, some decades ago, that relationship was the other way around. A Cape Town Union psychoanalyst, Vera Burman, had long talks with the Songoma from the Eastern Cape, and she recognized some similarities that fascinated her. However, she tried to reduce the spiritual worldview of the Songomas to the collective unconscious in Jungian terms, or even a bit more reductive in Freudian terms, and that However, by doing so, she eclipsed many features and phenomena, thus she misinterpreted them. However, she was a door opener, and her booklet about these encounters is still worthwhile reading. Now, this form of introductionism, unfortunately, is on the wane. And uh, when I studied psychology in South Africa, uh, there was a part called African Traditional Psychology. So there is a certain acceptance in academia that certain symptoms and experiences are culturally bound and they have to be taken accepted for real, whatever that is, sort of put into brackets. But the medical profession is also a practical and pragmatic profession because to do what heals is acceptable even if you don't know why that heals. But if it heals, it is good. And this is a door opener. And then somebody else we have to also mention is J.B.F. Lobscher. Lobscher was a trained psychoanalyst and psychiatrist in the early mid-20th century, and um, he worked at a psychiatric hospital in the Eastern Cape and uh, befriended the local Sangoma there and wrote about that friendship and about all the things he learned and how it resonated with European spiritistic worldviews at the time. And his book, The Pagan Soul, is available online. It's quite good to read. Lobscher is the person's name, that doctor's name. Now, the field of esoter studies of esotericism, that field is not defined by method, but by its subject. And at present, many scholars in the field regard Sangoma practice and its concepts as religious, which it is certainly not. Sangoma art and its cosmology and anthropology are not religious, but divinatory. And that's important. The cognitivism is the order of the day. And if you try to frame things in a cognitive way, like those are constructions and imaginations, and so you can be sure that many people will applaud you before you even have said a sentence or two. But this is just <laughs> reducing. Now, the phenomen there is another tradition of phenomenology. And the phenomenologists, they are quite acute about exploring the uh, this field and say, okay, what are regularities? What are patterns that recur? What is the logic of the whole thing? What are the phenomena and experiences? What is the transformation of that person? And some scholars in anthropology like Victor and Edith Turner have gone that way and have revised their initial 
uh, approaches in epistemics to find epistemics that are suitable to cover the phenomena that they encountered. They've written about that, and the Turners are quite influential in anthropology. So there are traditions which one can connect to. Well, more could be said, but that's in brief. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I think that's really fascinating, and I really, really, really agree about you know when we're as researchers when we're looking into things such as this. It's so important. Um, to avoid that reductionism and, and absolutely, as you said, to keep an open mind as well as our scientific minds sort of parallel. Well, that's my approach anyways. Um, but just in closing, I, I wanted to ask you, you sort of covered it a little bit, but how would you encourage future researchers um, who are interested in something such as Sangomas or African shamanism to uh, explore this topic? And, and what directions do you think this field might be moving into? Well, I believe it's a promising field. It's a promising field for various reasons. The one thing is, in North American and uh, Western European culture, there is a certain stage of post-secularism that, that we have arrived at. And the sociologists of religion are quite anonymous in this diagnosis of post-secular age that we have entered. Which means that we have the materialistic tradition still very strong and powerful in academia, but we also have a certain awareness that the world is more complex and that we are entering into post-secular stage. This goes along with a certain decline in Christianity. And some people have passed from Christianity into being nothings at all, materialists, and then they found that uh, just are not satisfying. They're looking for something spiritual. And they might be especially fascinated by these uh, very evidential forms of divination and things like that. There are also traditions like that in European culture and American culture too from the mid-19th century, spiritism which were, and psychic research. That's a great field and you will find much resonance between Sangoma uh, culture and uh, those submerged and uh, sometimes lost European traditions that are emergent too. Then it is interesting to research how is how does the Institute of Sangoma make the transition into urban South Africa? There are professionals who announce that on their uh, websites um, that they may be a psychotherapist and also trained Sangoma. Those could be people to who would be willing to share these things. You could do research on that. How the training being conducted into conditions of a modern industrial society. And, uh, which transformations are happening. This is a promising field of research. How does it interrelate and what are the effects with medical profession, psychotherapy, and so on and so on? How does the one maybe influence the other? Then, if you're a, a students of medicine, how does psychiatry and the diagnosis of psychotic and conditions or schizophrenia in African traditional culture, how does that fit with uh, our present Western knowledge or European American knowledge of uh, psychological disorders and how does the impact of the spiritual aspects, how does that interrelate with the psychological sphere? This is a promising field too and there is quite a bit of research going on in South Africa too. Then you might do research on regional forms of Sangoma practice which uh, people emphasize this or that aspect, how the roles defined in this culture, that culture, that culture. And if you have a certain knowledge of Romance languages, if you know Portuguese, if you know French, there is vast fields of studies in that way. And by the way, that said, 
some of the Sangoma heritage has flourished in Brazil too over the past five centuries. It's very much alive there in a bit reduced form compared to the African complexity, but it is quite alive and it's been connected to an Afro-Brazilian religion in which in whose fold this is practiced. This is Umbanda, and it has certain aspects of Sangoma practice and divination too. Then, to enter that field, read, read, read. There are works of Placide Temples, African philosophy and worldview. John Mbiti, he was a theologian philosopher who wrote about African traditional religion, philosophy and worldview. Then Eva Berglund, uh, Gabriel Setilwane, and quite a few others could be mentioned too. The I've mentioned some about the experience of training as a Sangoma. Uh, that gives you a good idea of the cultural frame, the philosophy, the epistemics that go along and in which these Sangoma practices are embedded. Then visit, consult with trained and properly graduated Sangomas. They may be willing to share and also be prepared, however, to accept that many rights are guarded by secrecy. Like Numfundum Lisa more than once told me, you know, you're a white man, you're, you're not supposed to know anything about these things. How do you know them? And then she said, me <laughs> things and I said, well, uh, one other thing just comes to me. Okay, so I'll tell you some more. And uh, But you, this is an ancient tradition, arcane secrecy. You just have to respect that sometimes doors are closed and sometimes they're open at another point. And somebody will Absolutely. be prepared to share with you. But this is just a respect for the things. Some rituals are simply not divulged unless you enter that yourself. And then uh, train your own mediumistic perceptions. All of us can sing to some degree and you become sensitive to that and you can relate to that field in a different way. If you observe that sometimes things happen to you that shouldn't happen, you already have premonitions in that, that sensitizes you and you can relate viscerally and intuitively to that field, which is quite important too. And then uh, let yourself be... Accept that the phenomena can teach you a few things. And this sort of turns the tables and be prepared if you enter that field, that field is going to work on you. Sometimes quite subtly, sometimes over long periods of times, but it does perceptibly work on you. And you are transformed in that way too. And this is something quite beautiful to experience. If it happens, you cannot control it, but you can uh, rejoice if it does happen to you. And so this is personally fruitful too, apart from the vast field for intellectually challenging field and quite interesting field from various perspectives, philosophy, psychology, medicine, psychiatry, anthropology, ethnology, uh, cultural studies, and so on and so on. Even music, embodiment studies, ritual studies. So there are quite a few perspectives to engage in this field. Absolutely. The list is quite endless. And, and you've certainly given us a few golden nuggets to take away there. And uh, I'm sure if there's any students listening that you you might see a, a couple of dissertations um and and i absolutely have to agree with you i think any research that we're doing into religion or psychology of religion or anthropology of religion it has to change us um but i will definitely be sure to link your work especially you mentioned umbanda um, I'll definitely be linking that in the description on our, our Religious Studies podcast webpage. Um, but I really just wanted to thank you so, so much uh, for sharing your knowledge and, and sharing some of these experiences and, and helping me to bring um, a subject that maybe isn't known too broadly to, br to bring that to light as well. Um, so I just, yeah, just end that by saying thank you so much for your time.
It's been a great pleasure. Thank you too. Okay. Well, that was definitely a different episode than what we're used to, and I'm loving the variety that we're getting on the Religious Studies Project, looking at so many different topics. Now, many of you may not have heard Maxine before, and she is indeed a new podcaster here for the Religious Studies Project, and we thought it would be a great moment for her to introduce herself. So let's hear from Maxine. Hi there, I'm Maxine Connolly Panagopoulos. I hail from Johannesburg, South Africa, where I received my honours degree in social psychology. I now live in Glasgow, Scotland, where I recently completed my PhD in the psychology of religion. Specifically, my thesis investigated the experiences of Iranian migrants who had converted from Islam to Christianity, both in Iran and in the UK. I aim to understand why so many individuals were converting especially when to do so, meant the potential consequences of social isolation, imprisonment, and even death. My research arose not only from my own interest in religion and culture, but also in response to a chance meeting between myself and a young Iranian refugee. Here he told me that he had fled Iran in fear of his life, because his conversion had been discovered. After this meeting, I began conducting my immersive PhD within an Iranian Christian community and I tried to represent as best I could the unique religious experiences of this group. Currently, I teach on a psychology program as well as student academic enhancement at the University of Glasgow. I'm also focused on sharing my findings with the academic community through publications and by developing my thesis into a book. Broadly speaking, my interests center on syncretism and culture in Christianity in the modern world. I'm really interested in mapping how culture and religion act to shape both individuals and groups within society. I think these interests were instigated by the rich religious landscape I grew up with in South Africa. A country which is mostly Christian, I saw wild diversity in the way Christianity was expressed here. From the more conservative Dutch Reformed Church to the larger health and prosperity evangelical churches all sprinkled with a bit of African mysticism and traditional practices. As a podcaster for the Religious Studies Project, my episodes would aim to cover subjects like this and some of the interesting ways that culture and religious syncretism plays out in the wider world. I'm so thankful that Maxine was able to share a little bit about what motivates her work and her background. It was really interesting to hear about how things work in South Africa from um, her and Dr. Kleinhempel. And here at the Religious Studies Project, we are always looking for persons that would like to contribute to the team and perhaps set up some interviews to speak with their favorite scholars or to expand the areas of research and study and topics that we can bring to listeners. We really appreciate the effort of all of our interviewers and we do everything we can to support them, but not everyone can do a huge number of interviews for us. In fact, most of our interviewers only do one or two or perhaps three interviews per year for us a very limited uh, scope of of work for us, but the opportunity to be heard by thousands of people is really um, quite quite an investment in your time. You get a huge return for 
for the opportunity of speaking with another scholar on an area that you might be an expert on and then sharing the expertise of another scholar. Bree, I know you and I have both been both on the interview side and now on the editorial side. What what would you say is the thing that you would most like to hear or see in some um, new interviewers for the RSP? I would really love to see some people with some different areas of interest. I would love to see somebody who works in maybe the area of, of if we want to call it Asian religions and Asian spiritualities. And I really love to see some geographical differences. We have, you know, Europe and the US and Australia represented, but especially if you're from somewhere else, we're not hearing a voice from. We'd love to hear from you to become a potential interviewer. We really want to make sure that all different voices are being represented, all different areas of our area of study here in religious studies are being represented. So we really want to, you know, focus in the future on achieving a greater diversity um, in all of our podcasts. Absolutely. And if that's something that is interesting to you, or if you know someone that might be interested in that kind of opportunity, we encourage you to send an email to editors at com, And you can visit our website at religiousstudiesproject.com and find the email, or you can contact us on Twitter at Project RS and just suggest the person to us there. And we'd be happy to reach out and connect with them. Next time, we have an interview that really does connect with this kind of public outreach and get into some new areas. And that new area is brought to us by our own very own Brianne Fallon, who interviewed Dr. Avril Alba about Holocaust museums as sacred secular space. And I, for one, am very excited to hear this interview air next time. And until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.